0: Hello and welcome back. Thanks for continuing to listen to the AUA University podcast. As a reminder, today's podcast has CME available at university.auanet.org. Today, we're going again into the archives of AUA 28 and bringing you course 063IC, The Prostate Cancer Update. Course director for today's course is Dr. William Catalonia from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is joined by five other faculty, and they will be offering a review of what this faculty believes are the most important articles in the English-speaking literature on prostate cancer in the last year. Focus is placed on articles that have a relevance to clinical practice in both research and clinical trials. I'll now turn you over to Dr. Catalona.
1: Good morning, I'm Dr. Catalona, and uh, I'd like to introduce our panel. We'll start at the far end. Russell Smulowitz is a medical oncologist um, at at the University of Chicago. Stan Liao is a radiation oncologist at the University of Chicago. Stacy Loeb is a urologist at NYU. Doug Dahl is a um, surgeon, urologic surgeon, at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And Robert Nadler is a urologic surgeon at Northwestern University. So we'll begin with epidemiology and genetics. So this is, uh, these are the latest prostate cancer statistics that came out in CA Cancer Journal for Clinicians as it comes out every year from the American Cancer Society. Uh, prostate cancer remains Uh, the most common non-skin cancer in men, accounting for 19% of all cancers. And uh, prostate cancer is uh, the second leading cause of death from cancer after lung cancer. Uh, Last year, uh, colorectal cancer was number two and prostate was number three, but this year prostate has jumped back up uh, thanks to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, this shows the incidence trends of prostate cancer over the years, and you can see with the introduction of PSA screening, there was a striking uh, increase in incidence uh, as, as previously undetectable cancers, an inventory of them w- were revealed by PSA testing. And then you can see around 2008, uh, the incidence began to drop, and that was the first time the task force recommended against screening men over the age of 75 and then since 2012 when they recommended gave the grade D recommendation for all prostate cancer screening the incidence of prostate cancer has really plummeted back to almost what it was in the pre-PSA screening era uh, this shows uh, the mortality trends in prostate cancer uh, in the brown line and it's had really the greatest uh, percentage decrease in mortality and uh, if you check uh, the the fast stats for the uh, SEER registry, and that I checked that in March, uh, there has been a 53 percent reduction in the prostate cancer death rate in the United States during the PSA era. Now, whenever you read these editorials and arguments and articles on on PSA testing, nobody ever mentions uh, these. Uh, these statistics in terms of the reduction in prostate cancer death rate. And in Canada, it's something like 49% reduction. So countries that have adopted widespread PSA screening have had a dramatic decrease in the prostate cancer death rates. Now, this shows um, the five-year survival rates uh, by stage at diagnosis, and you can see that, um, that it's almost 100%. If they have localized or regional disease, but it's only 29%. If they have distant metastases, and if you go back to the 1992 uh, issue of the same journal, uh, when uh, more than 20% of patients presented with metastases, the five-year survival rate for those with distant metastases was 29%. So, so. So for patients who have distant metastases at the time of diagnosis, there really have been no uh, major survival advances. And this shows the stage at diagnosis now. Uh, again, it was, um, uh, it, it was nearly 20%, so there's been uh, now there's, it's only 5% of patients present with distant metastases, um, and so there's been an 80% reduction in the In the percentage of patients who have distant metastases at the time of diagnosis uh, throughout the PSA era,
2: this paper is looking at some of the uh, impact of the change in recommendation from the United States Preventive Service Task Force when PSA screening uh, really stopped dramatically in two thousand and twelve that the finding since then is the overall incidence of prostate cancer, uh, as we just saw some of those statistics, has decreased. But the incidence of positive nodes has increased, and mortality is already on the increase. This is telling us, you know, even with all the treatments and so forth, with uh, currently when you have metastatic disease, your prognosis is very poor. If you look at those that have distant metastases, there's fewer than half are still alive at five years. Positive pelvic lymph nodes, the yellow line, uh, you know, there's significant mortality over time within ten years, and we're seeing more and more of these patients uh, presenting with more uh, extensive uh, disease. The prognosis is not good. So this shows um, the uh, incidence
1: and mortality rates by ethnicity. So if you use whites as the standard for the incidence and mortality and compare them with Hispanics, Hispanics have about the same incidence and about the same mortality rates as whites. When you move to blacks, uh, they have almost twice as high an incidence of prostate cancer and more than double the mortality rate. When you move to Native Americans, Native Americans have a much lower incidence of prostate cancer uh, than, uh, than whites, uh, but their mortality rate is the same. So even, even though they have less prostate cancer, they have, uh, you know, a relatively higher prostate cancer death rate. And among Asians, the incidence of prostate cancer is is much lower, and the mortality rate from prostate cancer is dramatically lower.
3: This is a systematic review and meta-analysis of the association between vasectomy and prostate cancer risk. And if you look at all of the studies together, there is a very small increased risk, although not for high-grade prostate cancer but the absolute increase is so small, so it should really not change practice. This study is looking at statin use among men who have prostate cancer during the year after diagnosis. And statin use was associated with a lower risk of prostate cancer death and overall mortality. But important to consider for something involved in a prevention kind of setting, also the risks of taking this treatment.
1: So, I mean, I see this in my practice, patients who have a radical prostatectomy, and they have adverse pathologic findings, and you're going over their path reports, and of course they've reviewed the literature, they, uh, many of them will ask me, should they, start on, sh- should they start on statins to reduce their likelihood of dying from prostate cancer, and you would say?
3: I don't think we have enough evidence to recommend that at this time. But if you happen to be on it for other reasons, which a lot of Americans are, then... This could be an added benefit.
1: So, this is a paper.
0: Bad. I mean, that's pretty good for a drug that's not so toxic. So, you want to. Well, it, it is. It, there, it,
3: there, yes, there hasn't been any kind of prospective, prospective clinical trial, number one. And number two, I mean, there actually are some significant risks with statins, but if you are taking them for, you know, an FDA approved indication, then all the more reason.
1: So, um, so th- th- this is a um, paper uh, that came out based on a consensus, consensus conference on genetic testing for prostate cancer inherited risk. And the bottom line of the study was, if um, if the patient seems to have a family history of prostate cancer, uh, the, the, you should do genetic testing, and uh, based on uh, the. Um, the, the opinions of the people, uh, they felt that they should be tested for BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM. Uh, both of these are uh, genes that uh, are associated with defects in DNA repa- mismatch repair. And uh, the other, the other uh, there was moderate support for Hoxb13, uh, which is a very rare uh, prostate cancer Uh, predisposition gene mainly in people of Scandinavian origin and of course the Lynch syndrome families uh, which are very often associated with colorectal cancer. But um, I I think more and more uh, it's appreciated that the family history can be misleading so somebody who doesn't have any apparent family history of prostate cancer could really be a carrier of uh, a major prostate cancer susceptibility gene and probably uh, anybody who has metastatic or aggressive prostate cancer should strongly consider uh, genetic testing.
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, if, it's, if the incidence is around 12% in, all, in all, all metastatic patients with harboring one of these mutations, and so uh, we have been testing or trying to test all of our patients who have metastatic disease uh, for germline aberrations. And just of note... It's covered um, with Medicare, but it's not covered with most private insurances, and so there's, um, you know, prior authorizations and things that have to be done. But you can get it done with paying out of pocket for two two $250 with color genomics and such. Doug, did you have a comment about Massachusetts? Uh,
2: Massachusetts is interesting because you have to do genetic counseling as part of ordering the test, so the physicians really unless you're going to set up to visit with them for an hour afterward and really are prepared to make all the ethical counseling, uh, physicians have to refer patients to certified genetic counselors in Massachusetts. Um, We
0: have to do the same. Uh, We have... Um, a, a, a video that we show patients that's like and there are videos available that's like a 20-minute video that's pre-test counseling and then all of our patients have to see the cancer risk clinic for post-test counseling
2: but it's important because we're seeing more and more of these patients that have a family history of BRCA and these certainly are not appropriate for active surveillance I would say I mean that's one important thing and the patients that have metastatic disease we're finding more and more of these things that when we test for them so
1: so uh, <clears throat> this is, um, again, Lynch syndrome. When we think of Lynch syndrome, we think of familial colorectal cancer, and very often we don't think about the other cancers that are associated with this DNA uh, repair deficiency um, syndrome. Uh, and uh, for urologists, it's important to, notice, to note that um, in Lynch syndrome families, the, the rate of prostate cancer is twice as high. The rate of kidney cancer, especially renal pelvis cancers, is three times as high, and bladder cancer is 20% higher. So uh, in, in patients who have these have this family history where there are multiple effect- people affected with colorectal cancer and other tumors, uh, one should also consider them at
0: higher risk for these urologic tumors. I, uh, we picked up somebody with this... Uh Fast track testing. We actually picked up somebody with no significant family history who was a prostate cancer patient with Lynch syndrome. So it's this actually happens in real life.
2: Yeah. This is looking a paper at does aspirin affect prostate <laughs> cancer? And from the Physicians' Health Study, which was a large study randomizing physicians to take aspirin or not, any of the current users of aspirin or re- or past regular users um, who took aspirin had about half the risk of serious fatal prostate cancer. Particularly, those who took the aspirin after their diagnosis reduced their risk of um, lethality. Some of these associations were weaker in the more contemporary series, but it really was still pretty striking. And, and there are other papers that suggest there may be a mechanism of aspirin inhibiting metastatic um, bit disease.
1: So, uh, if they have unfavorable pathology, you start them on aspirin and statins, is that right? <coughs> Why not? Most of them are already on it
2: anyway. <laughs>
3: Uh, This paper is an update to the AUA White Paper on Prostate Biopsy Complications. Um, I guess some notable points about this are that we should be assessing patients for risk factors for a prostate biopsy infection. So I know years ago I didn't even ask them if they had recently taken antibiotics for something else. So something like that may not be on their med list, but maybe they just had antibiotics a week earlier for an upper respiratory infection. Um, If you are seeing an increase in infections, there's several options, including um, targeted prophylaxis, either based on rectal swab cultures or the local antibiogram, or doing transperineal biopsy.
1: So if they've had a recent flight on an airplane, are they at hi- well, higher they risk? they are
3: at higher risk, and uh, foreign travel was shown to be a significant predictor of biopsy infections and being a doctor, actually, because, you know, we're all um, exposed to a lot of resistant bacteria, so there have been <coughs> multiple case reports of sepsis or severe infection in physicians.
4: So Stacy and Doug, do you guys do uh, rectal swab cultures at your institutions or not?
3: Yeah, so we do those for high-risk patients at NYU. At the VA, we don't have those, but we um, meet with ID like every 6 to 12 months and have used the local antibiogram, and we ran the numbers, and that significantly reduced the infections.
4: Because in Chicago, the Cipro resistance is about 20 to 25 percent. So, it's, I mean, it's high, and it's probably similar to that in most communities. So we do a rectal swab on everybody, and uh, you know, are constantly tweaking the antibiotics, and we've reduced our, you know, admission for infection or fever rate to less than half a percent, which is reassuring to the physician.
1: So, so my anecdotal case is a patient uh, who had cis- cipro resistant organisms on his rectal swab, so we used other antibiotics. He got septic afterwards, and the only thing he responded
2: to was cipro. <laughs> well, we've had patients that were pan sensitive sepsis and our our infectious disease people won't do the rectal swabs for whatever reason but we've we've recently changed we give them either am ceftriaxone or oral sulfadoxine instead of any of the levquin or that unless they have a penicillin allergy but
4: but the other thing that's equally important is you they need to get the antibiotic you know 1 to 2 hours before the right. biopsy and 12 hours after a lot of patients you may give them the right antibiotic, but they don't take it at the right time point, so it's ineffective.
2: But the AUA guidelines say do not give anything post.
3: Well, they say it has to be less than 24 hours, and I think that's probably another key point because of that FDA advisory that came out about fluoroquinolones and the black box warning. Um, I know in the past a lot of places were giving three days of antibiotics, and... I think that would be harder to defend if there was a complication when the guidelines say to limit it to 24 hours.
4: Yeah, we just prescribed two pills, one two hours before and 12 hours after.
1: Okay, so um, this this is a personal reference uh, of of one of my papers that reviewed uh, prostate cancer screening, and um, it basically goes into uh, the role of the um, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, in, um, in strongly affecting prostate cancer screening. And last week, the task force uh, came out with um, new recommendations that Stacy will comment on in just a second. Uh, but uh, and there were at the time of the, this publication, there were two editorials that I would recommend everyone, read Bal Carter wrote one. Peter Carroll wrote one. I thought that they had. I thought that the tone of the editorials weren't tough enough, uh, and uh, and uh, Peter Carroll's did say that it was a step in the right direction, but emphasized, you know, we need to go further in encouraging screening uh, in high-risk patients such as African American men, men who have a strong family history of prostate cancer, and for healthy men over the age of uh, seventy, and. um, and actually in men under the age of 50 who have a high baseline PSA.
3: So here are the new recommendations. So for men ages 55 to 69, they recommend shared decision-making. So now actually we finally have a convergence between all the major professional societies, at least as it pertains to this age group. And then for men age 70 and older, they're still uh, recommending against screening.
1: In our, um, in an unpublished paper that was presented here at the, at, um, at this AUA meeting, uh, they, they they did a survey of patients uh, before and after reading a shared decision-making guideline. And they, they, they did most of the major shared decision-making guidelines, AUA, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, uh, you know, many of the other guidelines. And so before the patient read the guideline that he said, what his likelihood would be to elect to have PSA screening. And then after them, after having read the guidelines, he said what his likelihood would be. And all of these guidelines reduced the likelihood. I mean, it's kind of a Trojan horse uh, uh, for prostate cancer screening. And the worst one was the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force when you read these guidelines they say yeah maybe you should think about PSA screening but you know maybe you shouldn't and uh, there may be a tiny little benefit but there could be very big harms and so after this quote shared decision-making it's really sort of a disincentive trying to persuade the patient not to have prostate cancer screening. This is a very important study Um, that, uh, that, that was just published uh, la- last year um, and uh, as you all know there are two major prostate cancer screening studies prospective randomized trial the european trial uh, showed a twenty one percent reduction in the prostate cancer death rate in men who had screening and the pleco trial showed no no difference and because of this uh, the, the debate about the effectiveness of prostate cancer screening sort of went on for almost a decade. And um, then in 2017, it, w- it was uh, or 2016, it was revealed that in the PLECO study that nearly 90% of the controls had, had PSA testing during the study. And so in their initial publication, they said half of controls had testing, but when the data were reanalyzed, it turned out that, that in the screening arm, 90% were, um, had PSA testing. I'm sorry, in the control arm, 90% at PSA testing. So this is a a study by CISNET, which is the NCI's uh, statistical uh, team. And and there are two teams, one at the University of Michigan and one at um, Fred Hutchison Cancer Center. And they reanalyzed the PLECO screening results and compared them to the screening results, uh, looking at the differences in inflammation between screening trials. And the bottom line is that there was a significant prostate cancer mortality reduction in both trials. In PLECO, that had previously reported zero, and in the European randomized trial. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the red letters, you can see that uh, in the European trial, it was a 25 to 31% reduction. In the PLECO trial, it was a 27 to 32% reduction. So there is actually a proportionally greater reduction in the U.S. PLECO trial. And so looking at this analysis now, both major prostate cancer screening trials show a significant reduction in prostate cancer mortality. Uh, this is um, another important study dealing with the... Um, with the got new guidelines. Um, Probably the best trial that was ever done was this trial in Sweden, the goat board trial. And this trial differed from um, a lot of the other trials because they screened men as young as 50. None of the other trials screened men that young. And uh, they they carried the screening up to age 69. And um, and they did screening more frequently, biennial screening, and they used a lower PSA cut point of 2.5 nanograms. And in this trial, uh, with 18 years of follow-up, they found that the prostate cancer death rate was 35% lower in the screening arm. And interestingly, when they looked at the younger men, uh, age 55 to 59, they had very few men who were 50 to 55. But in the younger men, there was a 53% mortality reduction so in the entire population 35 percent and the younger men 53 percent and so I think that this provides some evidence that that uh, we should consider screening in men under the age of 55 as as is now recommended by the task force and will be recommended by the AUA and uh, this is a, a paper that just came out a few weeks ago and uh, it's from the United Kingdom, and it's um, called the CAPS trial, and it is uh, is often quoted in the lay media as the largest prostate cancer screening trial ever done, 415,000 men, that shows no benefit for prostate cancer screening. And uh, so uh, uh, in this trial, the men who were assigned to screening, 36%, Uh, had a PSA test so most of the men in the screening arm didn't get tested and uh, in the control arm fifteen percent did get testing and the whole thing was based on doing one single PSA test during the man's life so you're really looking at screening with one PSA test the median follow-up was only ten years which is really insufficient and they found no difference in the prostate cancer specific mortality in either arm but the Mortality rate was extremely low, 0.3 per 1,000 patient years. So um, the limitations of this study are that they had no data on distant metastases, insufficient follow-up to evaluate mortality. They they assumed also that early detection of a low-risk prostate cancer based on a needle biopsy represented detecting a harmless cancer. And this is a point to think about. There are a lot of patients that you might see Gleason 3 plus 3 on a needle biopsy who might have Gleason 8 in their anterior part of the prostate or with MRI sampling or you know with further follow-up. Just because the needle biopsy shows 3 plus 3 it does not mean that necessarily that is over detection of a harmless cancer and yet they counted that in their analysis as being over detection of a harmless cancer. So this is a study that will be quoted widely showing that prostate cancer screening doesn't doesn't, uh, uh, save lives, but it's really a very, very flawed trial. Uh,
4: This study recently came out in the New England Journal several weeks ago. It's a precision trial, which was uh, done in Europe. Uh, Men were randomized to MRI-targeted biopsy or standard uh, 12-core biopsy. 28% of the men in the MRI group had a negative uh, MRI and did not go on to get biopsy uh, at all. What they showed is that the MRI diagnosed higher percentage, 38% of Gleason 3 plus 4 cancer versus 26% for the truss, uh, the the non-MRI biopsy, and the non-MRI truss-guided biopsy tended to diagnose uh, more uh, lower Gleason-grade cancer. Uh, Their conclusion was that the MRI was superior to the standard trust biopsy. I don't have a problem with their conclusion. I think MRI is beneficial, but definitely multiple studies have shown that you are going to miss other cancers uh, if you just do the MRI targets. So in my practice, and I strongly recommend, that if you get an MRI, great, hit the targets, but you should also do the 12-core biopsy also, Uh, just to really get a complete sampling
2: as to what's going on in that patient. I agree, and that's what I do as well. I, Despite targeted lesion sampling, also do the standard biopsy. And I
1: think, you know, if you really look at the literature, all the studies one way or another show that. that, that, And the
3: 2018 NCCN guidelines say that too. So I think that at this point in time, that's where we are.
4: Well, I think there's a hope out there that, well, maybe we can avoid, avoid biopsies by doing an MRI, but I think currently that's not the case, and as Dr. Catalona pointed out, you know, 40 to 50 percent of people with even Gleason 3 plus 3 cancer on a standard biopsy are going to have additional uh, more aggressive cancer on repeat biopsy or down the road. So MRI is great, but I don't think it repla- is going to replace biopsy anytime
1: soon. No. And, and you should not just biopsy the, the MRI positive lesions.
2: But it is, I mean, it's compelling that, that MRI, I think, is rapidly becoming a tool in a patient that you have a significant suspicion. Do the MRI before the biopsy is helpful. Although
4: I was talking with Joel Nelson uh, last night, and he uh, not only is the chairman at Pittsburgh, but he sort of runs their medical practice, and he is heavily involved with insurance companies. And he says what's going to happen is that you're going to really just go to a lump of money uh, to take care of the patients. And at $6,000 a pop, uh, that's going to eat away at your lump of money. So I, I, I think there's no question MRI is great, but suddenly if you're getting an MRI on every man with an elevated PSA before you biopsy him, that's going to run up a pretty big bill. Well, pretty you're a
1: prostatectomy. It.
2: For free, right? <laughs> uh, Well, you're going to have to push. I mean, the radiologists are going to have to. They're, they're changing their protocols to do it faster. It's going to have to be less resource intensive, and they're going to have to lower the cost, bottom line. It's...
3: Perhaps by doing it without contrast.
4: Um, okay. This is um, a study out of the University of Michigan where they looked at cleansing the biopsy needle with a mixture of an antibacterial solution, which is isopropyl alcohol and 10% formalin after each core, they did 17,000 biopsies and showed a very small but not significant uh, decrease in infection rate requiring hospitalization. You know, we've done something similar at Northwestern. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really convinced that it adds anything. I think uh, there's probably no harm in doing it, but I'm not sure that you necessarily need to change your practice pattern uh to dip your needle uh, between each core how many pe- people
1: dip their needle in, in formalin with a biopsy most don't
2: or any sort of yeah, solution or alcohol yeah okay so this is interesting uh paper looking at um, prostatectomy specimens patients that were gleason three plus three psa less than ten who had radical prostatectomy and then correlating it back with the number of positive biopsy cores and the, the volume, total millimeters of cancer on any one cores. And, you know, a lot of times we're looking at one person has, you know, one core with a small amount of cancer. And it turns out when you look at the correlations that it really does not quite predict uh, what you're going to find inside. That if you look at only high grade or grade three, group, grade group three higher, only about five percent of the patients had that. But if you looked at Gleason- grade group two, or any extra capsular disease, anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of patients had significant disease, as you would, I think we still call that clinically significant. So it really does not correlate very well as tempting as it is to think that that you've given some sort of quantitative assessment with a biopsy.
1: So the amount of cancer in the cores, the percentage of cancer in the cores uh, does not correlate with what what's in the rest of the prostate Is that doesn't that
2: does correlate that very well right?
4: well when you think about it when you're doing a biopsy and it's an anterior lesion you may just hit you know two or three millimeters of it with the tip of your needle i mean everybody knows you sort of cringe but you say like well, i've just got to sort of suck it up and stick the needle three-quarters of the way through this guy's prostate to get this hypoechoic area and I think there's a reluctance on urologists to do that because it's uncomfortable for the patient. You may have more bleeding, but I think that may a lot of these biopsies may be tip of the iceberg.
2: Well, even it's interesting. Even with the targeted biopsies, you tend to un, you significantly tend to underestimate the total volume of the cancers. Again, because your needle, the, the the
4: last two to three millimeters of your needle is the bevel. You're not taking a core. So if you see that you really need to get your needle well into the lesion to sample it so I mean I think length is great but it you don't necessarily know what the length is till you take the prostate out okay, Stacy
3: so now moving on to markers so PCA 3 has really sort of um, at least we uh, aren't really using it in our practice anymore because it hasn't been shown to be uh, clearly associated with aggressive disease um, however, there has been some effort to um, couple it with other urinary biomarkers to improve performance. So one of those is this gene fusion called temperus erg So a combo test of PCA3 and temperus erg is now available commercially. It's called MIPS from the University of Michigan. Um, And it does outperform just using PCA3. However, this study is showing how it really did not work very well in African-American men. So it's a bit of a cautionary tale that for all of these new biomarkers, and there are so many coming out all the time, that we really do need validation studies in different populations, different ethnic groups to to, uh, confirm their performance.
1: So I really think that this is an attempt to take two flawed tests and put them together and hope that, you know, they'll compensate for each other's flaws. So the University of Michigan developed the the gene fusion test, and uh, and that's very common in white men. Uh, These gene fusions, that's the most common genetic abnormality in white men, but it's really very rare in African-American men, so if you just were to use that gene fusion, you'd have a pretty decent test in whites, but it would not be very good in African-Americans. And the PCA3 test has not been the greatest test.
3: Uh, No, I mean, there's (coughs) head-to-head studies against the prostate health index showing that it was inferior. So um, actually, it's on one of the only markers that have been compared in head-to-head studies. So I think that's really the gap. You know, if you walk around here, there's just all these presentations about new markers, new blood tests, new urine tests, and we just need to know how do they compare to FDA-approved tests that are already available?
5: We're probably all familiar with the NCCN risk stratification schema for patients who are newly diagnosed. It traditionally has lumped people into low, intermediate, and high-risk categories based on T-stage, PSA, and uh, Gleason score. More recently, it's come to light that the intermediate risk group in NCCN behaves actually like two separate groups that can be split up into favorable and unfavorable, which behave like low and high risk. So this group was interested in studying a genomic classifier, the decipher test, and to see if that could help improve the risk stratification they proposed a five-point model whereby each point was added for any risk category above low risk and any genomic classifier risk group above low risk. And they found an interesting uh, splay of the curves where there is a true intermediate risk group that is well defined. So uh, remains to be seen whether this will be widely adopted in practice but uh, may be a better approach to risk stratification.
1: And, you know, there are multiple criteria for calling uh, something like Gleason pattern 4. You know, I mean, Gleason pattern 4, you can have cribriform pattern 4, you can have pattern 4 that have other histologic features. And um, so probably the worst pattern 4 is the cribriform pattern 4. So we need to realize that even something as, uh, like the, the presence of Gleason pattern 4 is, is, not, is heterogeneous. And I think some of these genetic tests may be able to, you know, distinguish between... Uh, these different forms of uh, Gleason pattern for
2: So the AJCC periodically revisits the staging of cancers, and it's supposed to be based on prognosis and so forth. And that's, this is a very new, um, the new staging for prostate cancer that just came out is really very different, and actually is one of the few that c- incorporates essentially these risk categories with using PSA, using Gleason score uh, to try to categorize things so it's it's worth looking through and thinking through but some of the highlights are really important is that there's T2 is now when you do a, a prostatectomy there's no T2A T2B or T2C it's either it's either T2 or or T3 it's either confined to the prostate and they don't so there's just no it's just T2 there's no there's no uh, subcategories within prostatectomy and all the different stages now are really influenced by the PSA, the grade group, et cetera. So if you had a T1, uh, pathologic T1 patient with a PSA of 15 and a grade group 2, they're a stage 2B. Uh, If their PSA had been under 10, they'd be a stage 2A. So I don't know how often people use these different staging categories, but it, it does incorporate the fact that these all do have different prognostic features. And what's interesting is T3... Regardless of PSA, regardless of grade group is is viewed as stage three B which you know is really a significant prognostic difference than than many of the other features that we see so it's it's worth looking through and thinking about um, but and being certainly being aware that they have this new staging category so, I, I find it sort of ironic that
4: they don't want you to check pSAs yet now they're saying pSA drives staging so <laughs> yeah.
1: so staging used to be just the extent of the tumor you know is it localized to the prostate? Has it just spread extracapsular? Has it gone to the nodes? Has it gone to distant sites? It was all just extent of cancer, and now they throw in the Gleason grade and the PSA to you know further stratify.
2: One thing I see all the time, though, is you know, if, say a patient has biopsy positive on two on both right and left. People call it T2, but it's not. If it was if it was trig- the biopsy was triggered by PSA, regardless of how much cancer there is in the prostate, it's T1C. Yeah.
5: Another comment is that a lot of people will uh, upgrade the T stage based on MRI, but I don't think that that's uh, made it into the staging either, so that's ECE a on problem. MRI should not be a T3.
4: Okay, this is uh, an important AUA policy on the use of MRI. Um, three Tesla MRI gives you better imaging, but 1.5 Tesla can be used for patients with implants, and increasingly, uh, you know, you see patients with different Im- implants, and if you talk to your radiologist, sometimes they can do MRIs on these patients, so that's
1: important to understand. By, by implants, you mean like pacemakers and things like that?
4: Pacemakers, artificial hips, peritoneal dialysis catheters. I mean, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of different hardware put in them um, that, you know, you really, in my opinion, I mean, I just talked to our radiologists, and and we Try to figure out can or can we scan these people?
2: The three Tesla magnet really is very very powerful with these patients and can cause problems.
1: So the difference is that the the three Tesla just gives you a stronger magnetic field and is more likely to move the the uh, parts of these implants around.
2: Well, it heats up. Like I had a patient with Harrington rods recently, and they were getting hot while she was in the machine. And they, right. there's enough you know ferromagnetic stuff even in these high high expensive metals that that it can cause some problems.
4: Yeah, I've talked to people who've had uh, things embolized like uh, varicoceles and things like that, and they say they can feel, you know, the coil kind of, you can feel it in there during the MRI. So, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, there's a lot of variety of implants. Yeah. Um, Okay, now probably the most important or one of the important ones is that MRI should not be used alone for screening. As I said, there's a strong temptation to do that, but the AUA feels that MRI alone uh, is not good enough for screening. Uh, For diagnosis... Uh, the data supports the use of MRI in patients with a previous negative biopsy. I mean, I think this is the number one and best utilization of MRI. PSA keeps rising. Someone's had a biopsy or two. You get an MRI to make sure you aren't missing something. And when you do these biopsies, it's sort of like playing twister. You're holding the probe in a way that, you know, you just never would hold it for a conventional biopsy. And a lot of them also are right periurethral, which I think the urologists are reluctant in general, to biopsy, so I think it is. This is the best use of MRI. Uh, it has a possible role in the initial prostate biopsy. As I said, it does detect more high-grade cancer. I'm not. I maybe use it in someone who's very reluctant to get a biopsy or something like that. But I really don't use it as a standalone uh, staging. You know, there is a use in that. I'm not sure. You know, again, this is sort of dealer's choice on the part of the physician. A lot of times you can use the MRI to stage the pelvic lymph nodes, and maybe in a patient who has an abnormal feeling prostate that you're not sure if it's in or out of the capsule, you can use it to look at the lymph nodes for the pelvic lymph node dissection and help plan your surgery. Although I must say that most patients, you know, you If you're a savvy urologist and have been doing it a long time, you can feel the rectal exam and say, listen, I need to go wide here or I probably don't need to go as wide here. Uh, And active surveillance, it's useful but not sufficient. And interestingly, I've had several patients on active surveillance uh, where you recommend a biopsy for the follow-up or MRI for follow-up biopsies, and the insurance companies refuse it. So, I mean, we're definitely seeing that in Chicago.
5: There are several uh, PET tracers that have been studied for staging of prostate cancer. This is a review article reviewing uh, the more widely adopted agents that are available. So sodium fluoride is something that targets osteoblastic changes. It's uh, specifically for the bones, very highly sensitive, but not specific. Choline and flucyclovine target um, cell membrane synthesis and amino acid metabolism, respectively. Um, They'll image both bone and soft tissue changes. Both of these are approved for staging of recurrence after biochemical recurrence. Uh, PSMA PET is the most recent type of uh, novel tracer available. It relies on overexpression of PSMA on prostate cancer cells, especially higher grade recurrent ones. Um, This is not widely available, but um, you can sometimes find people uh, who will have studies open to get these. Um, these studies are limited by the small sample size, by the lack of randomization, uh, and uh, change in interpretation.
2: One of the, these, these pictures can be quite amazing with these new PSMA pets. So one of the really good ones is this PYL fluorine pet. In this study, it was 71% sensitive and 89% specific in identifying metastatic disease. And if you look carefully, you know, you can, there's a lot of other tracer t- uptake, the salivary glands, the, the kidneys, the bladder, et cetera. But you can see where the arrows are that the, um, you know, those, those were positive nodes that were confirmed on, on biopsies to be positive. And these are, these are going to really change the way we look at some of these high-risk patients.
1: So I've looked at a lot of these uh, scans, and I think this is the one that's going to make it. This uh, uh, this fluorinated PSMA PET scan, and um, if you compare it um, to the gallium PET, the gallium PET is kind of blurry and uh, you know doesn't really have high resolution. But if you look here where the little red arrows are and these little lymph nodes, it just has beautiful sharp resolution uh, and uh, and can really detect some amazingly small lymph node metastasis so if I had to bet on and this is not commercially available in the United States yet but I think eventually it will be and uh, if I had to bet on which one is would would end
0: up being the best one this is the one I would go with and there's a ongoing study that's nearly complete that of of this uh, multi-center study and had two has two arms called the Osprey study two arms one for high-risk localized disease um, and one for documented metastatic disease where there's correlations with biopsies, so you could really see the sensitivity and the specificity. So I agree with you. I think this is uh, an emerging test that, that likely will be
2: available in the next two years or so. This other gallium test um, is really quite good at sensitivity, and pa- even in patients with PSA's 0.2 to 0.5 after radical prostatectomy. Um, this they were able to find recurrences and document them in, in a high percentage of patients. Even in half of patients with a PSA between point two and point five and up to three quarters of patients with PSAs less than one, they were able to find sites um, and particularly if you had known aggressive features uh that you were able to find discrete discrete areas of recurrence. So these this one is very sensitive, but it's not as uh the imaging quality resolution isn't as good. I
1: think this will also translate into treatment because uh, PSMA is located on the surface of prostate cells, and the more aggressive the cancer, the the greater amount of PSA on the surface. So it really targets high-grade aggressive prostate cancer cells. And there's a capability of of labeling this with isotopes. talk about that, Stan? You want to mention that, Stan? Anything else? Yeah,
5: actually, um, this is, uh, we have a slide covering this in the advanced stage section where there's um, an alpha particle that's been tagged to PSMA, so it's a theranostics, uh, uh, an exciting area where um, we can possibly use this to target systemic uh, disease recurrence. So
1: I think this is really, it's going to be good for staging early stage disease, for staging advanced disease, for staging patients oligometastatic disease, and treatment. I, I mean, I think it's Evaluating treatment and actually
2: implementing treatment. So we're already being asked now to do a lot of oligo metastatic removals. So pelvic lymph node dissections or periaortic lymph node dissections are increasingly common when we see these things. So we'll see if they they help people or not. One of the, this uh, gallium PET was looked at also in staging staging studies for high-risk and high risk patients and uh recurrent prostate cancer. So these are 180 men with newly diagnosed high risk disease or had recurrence uh after radical prostatectomy their standard staging studies cat scan bone scan were all negative. But 3 quarters of these patients uh had positive gallium scans. Uh about a third of them had had uh, scans that showed s- just lesions in the pelvis uh lymph nodes but they were in abnormal spots of lymph nodes, not where you normally think uh, lymph nodes would be and often not in the areas where you'd either do surgery or, or target radiation. Um, many, there were up to 10% of patients had bone lesions that were not seen on the bone scan. So it really is, there's a very heterogeneous uh, population of these patients, some of whom may be amenable to targeted local therapies <coughs> or, or oligometastatic disease, and some clearly have a lot more widespread disease than we, than we can appreciate on standard studies.
4: Uh, this is a study out of Hopkins where they looked at patients on active surveillance and compared them to patients who were having confirmatory or diagnostic biopsies with MRI. And the take home message is that MRI had low sensitivity in the active surveillance patients. And again, the um, standard, you know, 12 core biopsy still needs to be done in these patients in addition to the, any MRI targets. Uh, This is a similar study uh, done out of Germany looking at 83 patients on active surveillance with low-risk prostate cancer having uh, fusion biopsies and systematic biopsies. And the bottom line here is that the combination of MRI and standard biopsy uh, had more upgrading 71% of the time than MRI alone or standard biopsy alone. So again, in these Patients, uh, you should do both biopsies. Uh, This is, um, I guess, next slide, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is a study uh, out of another study out of Germany looking at 83 patients on active surveillance for low risk prostate cancer. And similarly, uh, the combination of fusion biopsy and standard 12 core biopsy should be done for active surveillance. So I think that there's, you know, a common theme. Uh, Here, you know, there's a temptation uh, to not biopsy patients on active surveillance at all, or go with MRI alone. I have seen some data at this meeting where people thought maybe then, rather than doing yearly biopsies in these patients, you could go to twice a year or every two years, doing a biopsy. I think you probably should continue to check their PSAs every six months, but you still need to do some sort of standard 12-core biopsies on these active surveillance patients.
1: So one of, the <laughs> one of the big reasons the task force uh, decided to change the recommendation from a grade D to a grade C is because an increasing proportion of patients are doing active surveillance. So they felt that, you know, that, that made them more comfortable. But what's not really appreciated, um, and Stacy's going to show a lot of patients are now going on active surveillance, but the problem is they're not staying on active surveillance. And um, uh, actually, uh, the studies that have looked at, compliance with surveillance biopsies only 20% of patients comply so 80% of patients after they've had a couple of surveillance biopsies just say i'm not going to do that anymore and uh, we we we're, we're now doing a study uh on on active surveillance patients and i that involves multiple institutions and i sent out an email saying i need to know now how many of the patients that you've enrolled in our study who are Active surveillance patients are still on active surveillance, and after two years, half, half have dropped out of active surveillance. So there are a lot of people on active surveillance who are dropping out, and, and, the, and the urologists, I think, in general, are, are sort of using MRI as a substitute for biopsies, but it is not an adequate substitute you know, for the surveillance biopsies.
4: Um, this is another study out of Germany with a thousand patients where they did transperineal uh biopsies uh and again uh MRI looking for prostate cancer uh detection. Uh here they found that PSA density uh improved the negative predictive value of a, a negative uh MRI and this may prevent twenty percent of biopsies. I mean I think it's interesting. To note, I mean, I do use PSA density, but I'm not sure it necessarily drives whether I do or don't do a biopsy or whether I do or don't get an MRI. I think the MRI actually can be helpful in men with BPH. And, and I diagnose a lot of prostate cancer in men with, you know, PSA volumes between 100 and 150 grams. It's a lot more prevalent than you think. And it may be only 5% of the volume, but 5% of the volume of a 150-gram prostate compared to a 20-gram prostate or a 40-gram prostate is a pretty significant cancer, especially if it's got a lot of Gleason 4 in it. So uh, I think PSA density, you know, improves uh, what you're doing, but I don't think it's the be-all and, and end-all.
1: Yeah, so and this feeds into the comment I just made. So... Uh, you know, recognizing that MRI is not a substitute for the biopsy, people think, well, how about MRI plus PSA density? You know, maybe that combination would be better. It is a little better, but it's still not a substitute.
4: Then this is an interesting study alluding to what Dr. Catalow mentioned earlier about this Gleason 4 with the crib reform pattern, which is uh, a worse actor than uh, perhaps regular Gleason 4. And it is detected less often on MRI, uh, and this can have significant consequences as far as, you know, treatment, surveillance, et cetera. So, um, again, same common theme. MRI is beneficial, uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all.
3: So this is a study that we just came out with in JAMA on Tuesday, showing the increasing use of um, conservative management for a low-risk prostate cancer in the USVA system. So by 2015, it was up to 72% of all the low-risk patients under 65 were doing conservative management and 79% of the low-risk patients age 65 and older. So these are much higher rates than have been reported previously in U.S. studies and much more similar to what's been reported in Sweden.
1: So uh, we were discussing this yesterday as we were discussing this course, you know, why, why is it so high among veterans? You know, why do veterans go along with active surveillance? And so we decided, number one, is that there are no financial incentives in the system, right, for doing surgery or radiation. I mean,
3: radiation. Th- it's, you know, it's probably a multifactorial process with uh, differences in both the structure for providers as well as differences in the patients. You know, um, maybe this patient population is just more accepting of um, an observational approach. So we didn't really um, delve into that. I mean, this was administrative codes Um, But in our previous qualitative studies um, with U.S. providers, we found a whole lot of different barriers to active surveillance. So I guess the bottom line summary that I would say based on your previous comments and this is we're making some major gains and we kind of got screening back, so that's good. But um, there are definitely some barriers to implementation of active surveillance, both in terms of the initial uptake and how to actually follow patients and compliance.
2: But it's also clearly more acceptable to the healthcare providers and to the patients. And that's, that's what I see in my practice, that 10 years ago, people would come in with one little core of, you know, Gleason 6, and you'd say, yeah, you know, we don't need to do anything. And they would say, are you crazy? You know, that sounds ridiculous. And now it's far more accepted. And, you know, we, it's our burden to figure out who, you know, in whom it's appropriate and safe. And that's where we still have a lot of work to do.
4: Well, and let me say this, our younger res or the residents who are younger are much more um, likely to put someone in active surveillance than an older urologist, and a lot of the VA patients are actually managed by the residents, so it may also just be the age of the you know managing urologist uh, in part also yeah
3: I mean that actually was a theme that came up in our qualitative study that we published last year in bJUI where You know, people did discuss um, really variable exposure to active surveillance during their own training. And I think actually the onus is on those of us who are working with trainees to make sure that we do um, not only training on operative skills and urology residency, but that they also learn about how to manage people for, you know, 15 years who are not having surgery or before or after a surgery. That's
4: going to be the problem at the VA. I mean, I don't think, you know, you have someone who's 55 who, for whatever reason, you put on active surveillance. I mean, I personally believe at age 75 or 80, that guy's going to have a pretty high volume prostate cancer and is he going to get twenty years of good active surveillance at the VA but that will be another well, paper.
1: Those of us who are older students have seen more patients die of prostate cancer.
3: So um, this study is a modeling study comparing different active surveillance protocols to each other because even among the published studies there's no consensus over the appropriate follow-up so it's very interesting because when we discuss on this panel here about quote compliance There is actually no randomized evidence or any definitive study saying what the actual follow-up protocol should be. But at least in the case of this model, this seemed to suggest that doing biopsies every two years is sufficient and that annual biopsies are not necessary.
2: So is active surveillance safe in Gleason 3 plus 4? This has been a big topic at the meeting this year. Mm -hmm. This was looking back at a eight over 8,000 radical prostatectomies at the Mayo Clinic experience of patients that had uh, either Gleason 3 plus 3 on a biopsy or 3 plus 4 and what their pathologic findings were. They all had clinical T1C or T2A and PSAs less than 10. If, uh, if the Gleason, you know, they, they found 6% did have extracapsular disease, even some with seminal vesicle invasion, but a substantially higher portion of the patients that had any Gleason 3 plus 4 uh, had these adverse pathologic features on their radical prostatectomy with an up to 20% chance of having a biochemical recurrence at 10 years. So I, I think it's v- very, very much, and if you look at the Toronto group, you have to be very careful. The, the patients that had the worst outcomes had, had any Gleason 7, so it's a really different group. So yeah,
1: one of the things that kind of impressed me at this meeting is that Lori Klotz, who... who you know, many view as the father of active surveillance and a strong proponent of active surveillance was in a debate at the SUO meeting, uh, debating against active surveillance for patients with intermediate risk prostate cancer or any pattern. And
3: Dr. Carter from Hopkins would have the same argument, yeah. so, you know, so, we. And,
1: I, and I, you know, I, I agree. I think that patients who have any pattern four in their biopsies are really rolling the dice with, with, uh, with active surveillance.
3: So along the same theme, again, this is looking at um, whether active surveillance would be safe in this, um, you know, kind of favorable intermediate risk group. And um, this study, again, showed higher risk of adverse pathology and a worse recurrence-free survival after prostatectomy in the patients who were even favorable intermediate risk compared to low risk. Um, The next paper is... Also on this same theme, again here, we're looking at this low-volume intermediate risk where there is only one or two cores with Gleason 3 plus 4, and these patients still had a much higher risk of adverse pathology. So they did all sorts of little subset analyses, tried to cut it different ways, and they were unable to find any specific criteria for these 3 plus 4 We have a study, actually, that we just submitted um, showing that the only intermediate risk group that did have similar prostatectomy outcomes in the Swedish registry was people who were Gleason 6 intermediate risk, but their PSA was between 10 and 15. So there are a cadre, perhaps, of people who have, like, a very large prostate, and their PSA is a little bit above the traditional 10 cutoff, but they still have Gleason 6. So maybe we do need to look in more detail at the reason that you're intermediate risk. Well,
4: Gleason grade is a very powerful predictor of prostate cancer aggression. You can do all the molecular tests and et cetera that you want to do. But if you're worried about metastases, the lymph nodes, bones, or extracapsular extension, I mean, you ought to respect the Gleason grade four and certainly five.
3: So this is another study on um, MRI and active surveillance, and um, basically what it's showing here is that these patients had an MRI at the inception, and that MRI was actually a predictor of who would have reclassification at one year. Now, the other important finding, though, is at one year, when they did these MRI-guided biopsies, you'll see at the lower line there of the patients with reclassification 55% were based on just the systematic biopsy, 15% based on the targeted only, and 30% based on both. So I think we could say in summary that uh, we are still recommending that systematic biopsy plus the targets because many of the reclassifications in this series, again, were on the systematic biopsy. Are we on time? We're exactly on time. Exactly
1: so. on time. So we have Yay. 10 minutes uh, for questions or comments from the audience. And maybe it would be best if you use the mic so that everybody in the room can hear you. Any questions or so comments? So I want to
2: ask I mean, just on that last paper, my, you know, my experience with MRIs, serial MRIs, is it's really uncommon for anybody to have any significant change in their findings within even a year. Um, I don't know what your experience has been, but it's, it seems like those should not be done. <coughs> that frequently in most patients that are on active surveillance. I agree with that, and sometimes
4: I'll biopsy and just use the old MRI as a measure as to what area to look around. I mean, the thing with MRI is it forces you to look carefully at hypoechoic lesions. When I do an MRI, I use it as a roadmap, but then I usually biopsy off the ultrasound, not off the MRI that's on the navigation device because the prostate moves around.
1: Good question.
5: Yeah, hi. Uh, Randy Randazzo from Chicago. And Dr. Carroll's uh,
1: defense of um, surveying Gleason 4 patients in the debates uh, yesterday, he was saying that not only cribriform is a high-risk factor but also intraductal uh, cancer and also that if the core has more than 20 percent of grade 4, those two factors, cribriform and high-volume grade 4, seem to be um, higher risk for those patients who you might consider right. surveillance. And uh, so cribriform is... is bad news, Introductile du- is even worse news, and, uh, and, and, uh, but uh, in terms of the amount of volume four, I, I don't know whether there's really good data on that. I, I haven't seen that quantification yet.
0: Adam Thomas from Indiana. Um, has anybody looked at the cost to the patient for active surveillance versus just getting treated in the era of deductibles? Yeah, so it's there, expensive.
1: Uh, there are there are so this this is really a great question, and it's a question that the S- Center for Medicare or Medicaid would like to know. Um, there there has been a study published from uh, San Diego University of California San Diego, and another study published from UC Davis. And uh, the, the study published from UC Davis was sort of aimed at the office practicing urologist, and it was basically saying. Uh, bottom line, there's, the doctor can make more money a, a, in a patient on active surveillance than he can with a radical prostatectomy by, you know, bringing him back for the surveillance biopsies and, you know, and eventually many of them are going to go on to a radical prostatectomy anyway. And so that was the bottom line of of, of that study. And then the other one was uh, looking at, to the costs of Medicare or, or to the costs of the insurers and... Um, and it's less, dramatically less. Active surveillance is dramatically less than going straight to radiation therapy or surgery. But the, um, a really good study has not yet been done, and I'm sure that those studies are going to be commissioned and, and be done to determine, you know, to the cost of the whole healthcare care system, uh, how active surveillance compares to radiation to, and to radical prostatectomy.
2: Well, it's clearly a burden, you know. If if a say the patient has a high deductible insurance, which more and more people do, you know, these MRIs are very expensive. Deductibles, the biopsies, all these things are 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 expensive, and you're going to be incurring that, you know, probably one of those major things every year. It ends up being pretty expensive.
3: I was just able to pull this up. There's an abstract here that um, addresses this in some detail. It's MP seventeen oh four by McGill. So um, they have a poster with a lot of details on cost. And what is
1: the bottom line? That's
3: with Franklin Galus. I mean, up front, it is a cost savings. But then as they continue to follow the patients out more, the costs do start to climb, you know, because as you point out, I mean, a lot of the patients end up getting radical therapy later on and things like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you detect their cancer early and do a radical prostatectomy, that's it, right? You know, they come back. Or a PSA every six months and maybe a doctor's appointment once a year and that's it. But in in, in patients who go on active surveillance, 20 to 40 percent of them have worse disease than they think think initially and they get followed up, they get MRIs, they get biopsies and then many of those come off and get radiation and surgery. And and then, then if they, in the Toronto series, those who ended up getting active treatment after a delay on active surveillance, only half of them were cured, so then they get salvage therapy, and they get an androgen deprivation therapy, and they get chemotherapy. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that has to be evaluated over the long term, and I don't think that that has been done. Yeah, Mr. Randy. Uh, any uh, studies looking at high-risk uh, prostate cancer patients prior to s- definitive, study, uh, definitive treatment, and particularly PET scans, to see if we can kind of look at where the lymph nodes are positive so we can direct our surgery and our radiation therapy? Yeah, so these are the studies that are, are now being done, and, and this is where I think that the fluorinated PET is going to be, you know, really very valuable in the future. Are, how, about, how are we doing on our 10 minutes?
5: Yeah, we should move on.
1: We should move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Radical prostatectomy. Stacey?
3: Okay, so this is a study from the Swedish registry. Um, Many observational studies already comparing radiation therapy versus radical prostatectomy. Here's another one that showed a higher risk of death with radiation, but it was really attenuated after adjusting for other factors. Um, so, really, they just uh, seem to suggest that there's not much difference and choose based on side effect profiles. I guess my take-home message is that all these studies that are retrospective are just so confounded because there's just major differences in the patient population. So you can see some of these observed differences just start to disappear once you really start factoring in all the differences in the patients.
1: Yeah, I I think that there's no way really to answer this question except for a prospective randomized trial that would have 20 years
5: follow-up. And we do have the Protect study, which reported its first follow-up with about 10 years out of the UK. Lots of patients randomized to get active monitoring, radiation, or surgery. And granted it was mostly low risk patients, but radiation and surgery did the same in terms of the, the late endpoints.
1: But you're talking about really low risk patients at ten years. And and most Correct. patients who ultimately die of prostate cancer, die between 15 and 20 years after diagnosis. Even the non-low-risk patients go that long before they, you know, die of prostate cancer. So the ProTECT study is, I think, the best thing out there now in terms of coming up with an answer within the next decade, but I think it's it's still going to require, uh, you know, a, a lot longer period of time before we really know. It's very hard to compare surgery and radiation.
5: I think the, the cost specific mortality at the first report was only one percent uh-huh.
1: so uh, this is the pivot trial, and this is um, sort of th- this is another trial that compares radical prostatectomy with, um, with active surveillance or not really active surveillance, but observation. It was largely done in a veteran's population. Uh, one of the uh, entry criteria was the patient had to. Have a life expectancy of 10 years, but uh, in the trial, uh, uh, half of the patients had died by 12 years. So, you know, they were sick. They were sick veterans p- patients. But I show here the uh, the o- the overall survival uh, uh, survival curves. Everything in this trial was better for surgery, and and I show the forest plots. Virtually everything in this trial was for surgery. But if you read the conclusion of the paper and what's quoted in the literature, they say, in conclusion, radical prostatectomy was not associated with significantly lower all-cause or prostate cancer mortality than observation through 20 years of follow-up among men with localized prostate cancer that was diagnosed during the PSA era. So the bottom line is there's no difference between surgery and active surveillance, and this gets quoted through, um, throughout the literature. But... The study was so flawed, it was underpowered. They were via VA patients. 20% in the surgery arm did not get surgery. 20% in the observation arm received surgery or radiation. The follow up of 10 years is still limited. And, And the patients in the surgery arm had lower death rates, lower prostate cancer mortality, less disease progression, and less treatment for progression, and fewer metastases. So, this study. That is quoted as showing that there 's no difference between surgery and observation it really has a strong uh, bias or a strong benefit in favor of the surgical results
0: and, and you know <clears throat> so I have no skin in this game as a medical oncologist, but if you just look at the over the uh, confidence interval the ninety five percent confidence intervals in the entire group, you know yes, it crosses one but just barely, so there's you know a 5% chance that it's just barely not significant. So I mean, it's an overwhelming chance that it actually is a significant uh, improvement. And
1: interestingly, in intermediate-risk patients, so the big debate at this AUA meeting is should intermediate-risk patients get active surveillance or surgery? In intermediate-risk patients in this study, there is a statistically significant lower prostate cancer specific mortality rate with surgery.
0: Can I just ask, uh, what's the difference between observation and active surveillance? Uh,
1: Well, so um, people say active surveillance is, you know, you're following the patient very closely, and if there's any sign that they have bad disease, you intervene quickly. Observation is, you know, you just wait till they get metastases and then you treat them. That's watchful waiting or, or observation. It's just not being as vigilant and not jumping to active treatment as quickly.
4: This is a nice study done prospectively in South Korea with only 120 patients where they gave sildenafil 100 milligrams twice a week immediately after catheter removal versus three months later, and they showed a 41% Uh, improvement in erections versus 17%. So I think for your, you know, motivated patients that want their erections to come back, uh, when the catheter comes out at five to seven days, you should begin your PDE5 uh, inhibitors to improve their erectile function.
1: So if this is for real, you know, and it's prospective randomized, uh, that's a pretty big difference, 17% versus 41%.
5: Two of these studies actually exist in the radiation literature, but they don't have sustained benefits to getting placebo versus a PD five inhibitor. Uh-huh. So must must be speak to a you know different nature of injury with radiation and surgery.
2: So this is a paper looking at whether um, a, a debate that, that rages continuously is whether nerve sparing approach in prostatectomy actually affects continence. This was looking at a database of a large number of patients that had had either uh, bilateral, unilateral, or non nerve sparing. Uh, procedures, and if you look at the uh, graph on the right side, so the patients that had the uh, non nerve sparing who started out with good erectile function actually it did have the an impact on their continence. But patients that started out with relatively poor uh, erectile function to begin, it, there didn't seem to be any impact of nerve sparing or non nerve sparing on continence. So overall, again, I think most of the studies show. In some cases, it may impact it, but I think it's usually a surrogate for sort of how carefully anatomically people are doing the dissection, particularly around the apex.
1: So you're saying that if the surgeon knows going into it that the patient's erections are 8 out of 10 without assistance, and he's really going to try to do nerve sparing, he's going to do more careful meticulous dissection and be less likely to damage the sphincter mechanism? I I
2: think that that's that's my opinion, that people are more... Yeah. Careful anatomically at the apex with that. What do you think?
1: I agree. I mean, I think that that's probably what explains it. So uh, this this slide I threw in there um, because of uh, I had I had a patient who's who complained bitterly about orgasmic dysfunction after a radical prostatectomy, after a nerve sparing radical prostatectomy. He recovered his erections, uh, but his orga- he was very unhappy with his orgasms and in my personal experience uh, my patients complain about not getting their erections back but they very seldom complain to me about their orgasms and I told them I said you know this is really unusual to have somebody you know complain about this so he reviewed the literature and uh, <laughs> s- sent me a bunch of articles and uh, I, w- I was a little astounded that uh, 60% of patients, you know, following a radical prostatectomy have uh, orgasmic uh, dysfunction. Uh, And so I I was asking Robert and Doug, do do your patients complain about orgasmic dysfunction?
4: Really never. I mean, I think that the quality may have changed somewhat, but I just, they don't complain and my patients would complain if there was a significant problem.
2: (laughs) it is it's not something that's commonly brought up, but it is something that I have heard comments over the years there i've you know this thing of nine percent improved I have had you know a small number of patients actually say they were delighted because it's like more prolonged less final they say more female type orgasm, which is interesting and and uh but most people don't <laughs> don't um uh don't complain that it's worse that, you know that's let me just pull the
1: group uh do your patients complain about orgasmic dysfunction after radical let's have a show of hands quite a few quite a few and how many almost never hear any complaints about orgasmic dysfunction from their patients more so, but at any rate if this study is correct it's out there <laughs>
4: Uh, This looks at uh, a retrospective study uh, from Australia looking at standard versus extended lymph node dissection in 1,800 patients, 61 of which were node positive. And at four years, uh, there's a 10% biochemical recurrence-free survival. And interestingly they really didn't see a difference between the standard lymph node dissection and the extended lymph node dissection. With the standard having seven nodes, the extended 22 nodes. So, I mean, I think, again, like a lot of things, the surgeon needs to make a decision based on his experience and the patient, what sort of lymph node dissection the patients require. Uh, but uh, this is a little bit disheartening that these extended lymph node dissections for those who do them really don't yield much, and I do think they yield
1: uh, more morbidity. They do yield more, more morbidity, and the other thing is, if you look at those um, PSMA scans, a lot of these lymph nodes, uh, you know, positive lymph nodes that light up on these scans are in areas where we don't do node dissections. You know, they're in the the, the, the around the rectum and
5: uh, yeah some of these area. are some of these recurrences are even in areas where we don't give radiation you know aortic bifurcation like right. you said mesorectal, so it forces us to rethink our our volumes and be more selective about individualizing therapy yeah and
4: i think that's where some of these you know pets uh, ct's and things like that to look for lymph nodes will be more important and fit people who fail and maybe even treatment planning uh, looking at cytoreductive uh, radical prostatectomy in oligometastatic disease, uh, these were pa- patients with PSAs less than 150. Uh, They had bone lesions, but no visceral metastases. It really doesn't affect uh, overall survival or cancer-specific survival, Uh, but it does reduce local regional complications, 7% versus 35%, which was significant. I mean, I think that's all in check with what we understand and do. You're not necessarily curing their cancer, but you're improving their quality of life, less hematuria, less obstruction, less ureteral obstruction, and maybe lessening some of the need even for radiation or the complications
1: associated with radiation. And Stan, you're going to have a paper with radiation for this showing
2: it delayed. Yeah, that one's
5: actually metastasis-directed therapy. Yeah, okay. So,
2: yeah. so we, we say that in this kind of setting that you can turn the disease into an outpatient disease. If you do a radical prostatectomy, they're not going to come in with urinary retention, hematuria, you know, needing additional procedures that, you know, you, you're, you're controlling the local disease with, so. But I think
1: that the strong thing that really needs to be underlined in, in, in these patients is they should have resectable prostate cancer. They, they shouldn't have a frozen pelvis. You know, you should not be doing cytoreductive surgery on mm-hmm. patients with oligometastatic disease that have, you know, a frozen pelvis.
4: Right, and the rectal exam and the MRI and surgeon experience and patient uh, function, I'll go into that. Uh, this is uh, sort of a debate with Abe Morgenthaler, and really what he's saying is that there's weak evidence that uh, testosterone is dangerous for prostate cancer, uh, and he feels that the, really all patients uh, with prostate cancer uh can be treated with testosterone. Uh I think I mean i have no reluctance on giving it to patients post prostatectomy. Uh I am probably more reluctant in giving it. For example, I had a patient with a surgical failure who had radiation and a PSA of zero and his test he was feeling weak and his testosterone was borderline low but still in the you know high one hundreds and I wasn't I I didn't feel comfortable Giving that patient testosterone, I suppose, off of this data, you maybe could. Um, but I think that what we're finding is that replacing testosterone in appropriate patients is probably more accepted and reasonable uh, in appropriate patients.
1: So I heard a, a great talk at this meeting um, by a young urologist from Mayo Clinic who led the guidelines AUA Guidelines Committee on um, Testosterone Replacement Therapy. And and in the AUA Guidelines, they said, you know, there's no problem in giving testosterone to prostate cancer patients. And the only exception would be um, a a patient who uh, had aggressive prostate cancer and was really hypogonadal. So in other words, he's starting out with a low testosterone just because he's you know, he, he's physiologically hypogonadal. If you give him testosterone, you can make it worse. But in the absence of a hypogonadal patient, the bottom line from the AUA guidelines is that um, there, there's, it's okay to give testosterone replacement therapy. Uh,
4: this looks at focal therapy. This is uh, a European study where they looked at multiple studies of patients who had cryo, hyphu laser poration, brachytherapy as focal therapy. Uh, there were decreased side effects as far as ED or incontinence, which makes sense. But, I mean, the treatment failure is terrible at 64%. Uh, so the conclusion is focal
2: therapy should be investigational only. This is looking at a phase two trial that looked at HIFU for hemia bleeding, a prostate that had a positive biopsy, MRI finding on just one side. So they did a hemiablation with HIFU, uh, followed by a biopsy at 12 months. Uh, At that 12-month biopsy, there were still a quarter of patients that had had cancer. Um, 8% of them had significant cancer on their biopsy. The MRI, interestingly, only picked it up uh, 25% of the time, uh, detecting residual disease. Uh, Most patients tolerated it quite well as far as urinary symptoms. Um, But, you know, there was maybe 25% of the patient's um, lost potency, so it is. It does have lower side effects than other whole gland ablation, um, but still, again, one, one of the things we find is residual disease is still an issue. This is now looking at partial gland ablation, so this is even less. Uh, this is just basically focal therapy of a targeted lesion. And looking back at both primary and salvage settings, uh, a meta-analysis of 13 different studies, there is some measurable incontinence in many of the studies, up to 10% of patients. They did not see any fistulas in patients who hadn't had prior uh, radiation treatment. Uh, But there is, even with the uh, partial treatments, there's still a a measurable rate of erectile dysfunction of patients that started out with good function.
1: So I had uh, dinner last night with um, some urologists from Europe where they do a lot of focal therapy in the radiation failures. And, you know, they just talked about these terrible fistulas, and they said it's just awful. They just stopped, you know, stop doing it for, for the radiation failures, whether it's with cryo or HIFU.
2: It's a hard decision. I mean, we face this. What do you do with these patients that don't have any, any you know, that do have recurrence but don't have any metastases? you know, salvage prostatectomy is no no picnic either, and but it's probably better than having a fistula, but, um, but these are the ones where we're going to have, these PET scans will probably find, most of them have metastatic disease anyway, and we probably won't be doing it.
4: And I think for the patients who fail external beam that aren't candidates for surgery, probably cryo might be a little bit better than, you know, HIFU. is just kind of piling on.
1: Well, they were talking about these <laughs> terrible cryo fistulas too. So. Yeah, I don't know. You've got to be know. very, very
2: careful. Yeah. I would be very, very careful with any local therapy for somebody who's failed radiation. This is, your- yeah, radiation.
4: So th- this is uh, out of uh, France, looking at partial gland ablation versus radical prostatectomy. Uh, and the problem uh, in these patients is that 80, 28% had recurrent uh, or residual cancer um, on biopsy and 89% of those on the treated side. So, you know, the complication rate is high. You do have better continence and potency, uh, but you have a high risk of treatment failure.
1: And that almost all the, all the uh, positive biopsies are occurring in the site where, where you treated them?
4: Right. I mean, I think if you have a focal lesion that's in the middle of the prostate and you can aim your ablative therapy extremely well at it, it probably makes sense. But most cancer is multifocal. Now, this is what you're talking about, HIFU for radio recurrent uh, prostate cancer, a study out of the U.S. and Canada with whole gland HIFU. Uh, 81% were negative at 12 months, 50% had a PSA nadir of less than 0.5, but 91% had complications. I think these only measure the higher complications like incontinence and stricture, but there is literally like a 5 to 10% uh, fistula rate in these patients that Dr. Catalona alluded to. So, um, uh, you know, I think... Maybe in selected patients, but you being, probably are better with a more systemic form of therapy. And then uh, looking at salvage HIFU, again for local recurrence after external beam radiation therapy, 418 men. Uh, the patients who responded better had lower PSAs, lower Gleason score, and a history of androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, so the feeling was if you're going to give it, you should give it early. I mean, I think one problem with these radiation failures is the radiation oncologists maybe are a little reluctant to admit when they have failure, so you see these patients a lot of times with PSAs in the 10 or 12 range, you know, versus the 2.8 range, so that may hurt the patient a little bit, but We still don't have a great option for these radiation failures. I
5: I don't know if it's a failure to acknowledge um, much more so just that there's a failure of really good options. And these are men who are older, and you're not sure whether they're going to die of um, their recurrent disease. So the surgical ones are a little bit different because they tend to be younger, better fit. They're selected for surgery at front, and it does make a difference to do early salvage radiation compared to later
2: Here's another option in this and the, the next paper. Look at a new technology called electroporation, where you do a transperineal break, brachytherapy template-type approach to the perineum, and these thin needles and then an electric current passes between the, the needles. It's not really cauterizing it, but it's it, what they call electroporates, essentially depolarizing these cells, which causes them to, to die. Um, so this was looking for pa- at patients who had had radiation failure, uh, and 80% of them at six months, when they re-biopsied them, did not have any positive biopsy. That about half of the men that still had potency preserved their erections. There was some impact on on uh, continence, um, but you can do this again if somebody has a positive biopsy again. So this this looks like something that may be kind of interesting. So this is this Europe or Australia? Or? This was this Australian paper, and uh, both this one and the next paper out of Australia. So they have a have a fair experience here. Here you see some MRIs. Now these were patients where this electroporation was done as primary therapy essentially a hemigland or or uh... directed ablation they had looked at sixty three patients with pretty high volume gleason six or an gleason seven um, they did have again as you see in all these focal therapies a fairly high positive rebiopsy rate uh, especially with the higher grade um, and that's that's a real issue uh... it was pretty well tolerated with with well you know not not a lot of urinary or sexual impact But I think that this is really, um, overall, a huge theme today is that, you know, the Gleason 3 plus 4 and higher is a more extensive disease. And, you know, if half of your patients still uh, are going to have positive disease, then, you know, then the salvage treatments after this are much less attractive. Doing a prostatectomy in these guys is, is, they're going to have much higher complication rates and much less uh, favorable functional results. Um, you've got to be very careful about counseling these patients. And the ones that it works well in are a lot of the patients that probably be suitable for active surveillance. <laughs> what,
1: what, what bothers me about this is sort of sticking two needles in the prostate and sparking your current across them. I mean, if that worked, why wasn't that done, you know, 100 years ago?
2: Well, we've all come a long ways. We've got these phones and things. You know. <laughs> Technology sure that, has come yeah, a long way. I'm ways. not
0: sure there would be a lot of takers for it. We're going to stick two electrodes in your through your rectum, you know, through your butt and electric shock you. But okay. Trust okay. us. <laughs> Might help so, with their depression. <laughs> moving along,
3: this is vascular-targeted photodynamic therapy, uh, yet another one of these novel treatment approaches. And this, this is a two-hour procedure, but then the patient must sit for six hours under dimmed light uh... so this study is looking at eighty two patients who were treated with this uh, with a median follow-up of sixty eight months so uh... many of them did have a decrease in their psa you can see the follow-up biopsy results uh... basically where eleven to eighteen percent of the patients still did have significant cancer in the treated lobe on a repeat biopsy so well-tolerated, how efficacious these things are from an oncologic standpoint, I would say remains unproven.
1: So this has been around for a long time. A group in Israel uh, developed this chemical uh, and patented it. And what they do is they uh, inject the chemical in your veins, and if this chemical is activated by light of a certain wavelength, it causes the blood to clot. And so then Speaking of sticking two needles, two, two needles in the prostate, they stick a couple uh, um, laser, laser fibers, laser. you know, in your prostate. They give you the infusion of the chemical. As the ch- chemical passes through your prostate, they turn on the light, and all the blood clots in your prostate. And that's that's the treatment, but uh, you ha- you have to stay in the dark, or else it does the same thing to the rest of your body. case,
5: All right. So one of the hottest topics in prostate radiation, maybe 10, 15 years ago, was um, what dose is the right? And we were all talking about dose escalation. There were several randomized studies that showed an improvement in PSA control, but not survival. This is a big study through a cooperative group that was designed to test definitively whether this would impact overall survival. So RTOG 0126 took intermediate risk men, 1500 plus, giving them 79.2 versus 70.2 gray And with a median follow-up of eight and a half years, it shows that it does improve biochemical control and distant metastasis, but not cause specific mortality and overall survival. Um, There is a slight detriment in the toxicity profile, about 5% more grade two toxicity. Um, But with current technology, it's probably minimized in in today's treatments. So the the bottom line answer with dose escalation is that it improves PSA control and distant met, but not survival.
1: So if you were a patient and they told you that you know that it would improve PSA failure, but it wouldn't affect uh, cancer-specific survival? Would you accept the increased toxicity of dose well, escalation? I think
5: the way we look at this data now is um, we try to select the patients who are going to um, be at the highest risk of dying if they do have a recurrence, and those are the younger, healthier men. So you tend not to shy away from dosing those men. Maybe you'd even consider brachytherapy boost. But in an older man who's come off of surveillance where at the, at the outset it might have been uncertain whether they would really be at threat from prostate cancer death, I think it's very fair to just give them a moderate dose of treatment and uh, not push too hard.
0: I'll just add that I don't think the follow-up is long enough for survival, right? It, it, if it, inc- it decreases the risk of distant metastasis, it, it, you know it, it's likely that over time that will lead to a difference in mortality.
5: Yeah, it's a good point, but um, like all of the studies that come out now, I think the event rate's a lot lower than when they initially designed it, so only 5% or so had distant METs, so it's probably too small of a signal to see uh, change in survival. So one of the more current hot topics now is uh, whether we can get away with shorter courses of radiation. That's called hypofractionated radiation. A number of studies have come out on this, and they've uh, included slightly um, different people with different fractionation schemes. So this systematic review of nine Phase three studies helps to consolidate those findings. Basically, the shorter courses of radiation had no differences in disease control, no differences in late toxicity, with only a slight change in acute GI toxicity, That seemed to be particular for men who had worse profiles if they did not have smaller glands, if they didn't have hormonal therapy, and if they were treated with a larger radiation volume to include the seminal vesicles at risk. So this is uh, something that's definitely coming on the scene in radiation, and it is a new standard of care to give patients a four- to five-week course rather than an eight- to nine-week course for eligible patients.
1: So, Stan, just sort of to set the perspective for the next slide, so standard therapy uh, traditional therapy is, is how many treatments would you say? Forty
5: forty treatments? Standard would be something like f- thirty-nine to forty, 40 four, yes.
1: And then just for round numbers, uh hypofractionated as it's practiced. Maybe practical. twenty to twenty eight. So you're cutting from forty to twenty treatments, a lot more convenient for the patients and the doctors. And then uh uh, cutting it, say, from 20 to lower numbers, wh- wh- yeah, that's what are the next, options uh, there?
5: Yeah, that's the next study uh, to but do. what are they called? So and wh- what uh, are the stereotactic options? body radiation is the delivery of extreme hypofractionated radiation in five days or less.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, patients are now being offered, do you, you want to come in for 40 treatments? Do you want to come in for 20 treatments? Or uh, if, if they heard one of the lectures the other day, four or five treatments and you're done.
5: Right. So uh, as technology improves, so does cost uh, typically. So this is a review of the market scan claims database. This is a private insurer commercial claims. And uh, what the investigators here sought to do was compare outcomes for the standard-of-care IMRT, Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy, with newer forms of treatments, um, namely proton therapy and stereotactic body radiation therapy, or SBRT. So this is basically two separate analyses that you see. um, Compared to IMRT, protons had a mixed response for their two-year toxicity profile. It seemed to be better for GU toxicity, but uh, worse for GI. Uh, The cost was about double, uh, as for SBRT, the toxicity profile was very similar, and the cost was a little bit less, as you would imagine. So, uh, yeah, the this cost, is the
1: cost is less because there are fewer fewer treatment. days
5: of treatment. So treatment. The, the cost of planning actually goes up. Um, that's why there's not a markedly decreased overall cost. But um, you know, part of billing and radiation is the uh, the ons- the oversight of the actual treatment. So. Um, If you're only billing for one week of oversight versus many more, then it's it's a much reduced cost. Do you think there's any role for proton in prostate cancer? Um, It's a hot button question. You know, we have a proton facility in Chicago. I don't think it's wrong to use protons, um, but uh, I think that uh, the advantages would be very small. There is a large study uh, nationally that's accruing. It's randomized protons versus IMRT. The endpoint is a grade uh, 2 GI toxicity rate, and I, I don't think that it's going to show a difference, but we need to see. Well,
0: I'll say it's wrong. I mean, I, I, I think that the toxicity is no better and the cost is higher.
5: Well, you know, if, you, if you, there may be select circumstances, and uh, if you can get your insurer to pay for it, the dosimetry is better, and that's what the proton physicians would say. So better dosimetry usually does... Lead to better toxicity profiles. so. Yep, we do a commercial. lot of both,
2: and because um, Mass General was really the first place that was doing any proton treatment, so it's been done for almost 30 years there, and really is a very marginal difference between the two.
4: I'll tell you, the worst salvage I ever did was in someone who had proton
2: therapy. I found it so ironic. I've <laughs> heard that. Well, the worst I've ever done is in brachytherapy, they're the worst.
1: Okay, so another area is these hydrogel spacers. So are they good or are they bad?
5: Yeah, so this is um, a device that basically separates the area between the prostate and the rectum by roughly a centimeter. Uh, This is a randomized study, a final report of people who received the space war placement versus standard of care, IMRT. And uh, it did meet its primary endpoint of being able to successfully reduce dose to the rectum. That did translate into a benefit in GI toxicity rates, but those benefits are very small, and it's about five percentage points on grade one and grade two toxicity. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's somewhat hard to know how to really absorb this, this data. Um, it is a positive study. You have to admire the company for going about this the right way, um, but the advantage is pretty small. And if your number of needed-to-treat is about 15 for a 5% uh, advantage, you know, do you want to really expose 14 extra guys to get a benefit in a grade one or two GI toxicity?
1: And so what my patients say to me, uh, they say, okay, I'm going to have external beam radiation therapy, and now the radiologist wants to put me through another invasive procedure to, to stick a hydrogel between my rectum and my prostate, you know. Is it worth it? You know, is it worth is it worth it to me as a patient to undergo that invasive procedure, an extra procedure that requires anesthesia, uh, you know, for this for this benefit?
5: Yeah, actually it's done under local anesthesia in many practices, and it's done at the same time as the fiducial marker placement, so it's not an extra procedure, but it is more invasive. And it is hard to get the local to work well enough to really be uh, make it very comfortable for the guys. So, you know, as a bottom line, I don't know whether you should be doing it in all patients. I think some practices are, but certainly select people, SBRT candidates, hypofrac, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, there's definitely a population that would benefit.
1: So, Robert, are you doing it under local?
5: Well, No, but we do it in our brachytherapy patients sometimes. We'll
4: put it in. But most of those have had external beams, so external beam, then they get their brakey and sometimes we'll put it in. Yeah,
5: I think the rationale for that is that they're already under anesthesia. You got the same equipment already set up with your brakey template, so it's just easy to do.
4: It is easy to do. I don't know, you know, I mean, there's no doubt the rectal toxicity is a problem in radiation. If you had a better way to predict it, you know, it would be beneficial. It's, this study is interesting and in that it only helps one out of 15 men, but if you could help the one man who has bad rectal toxicity, it would yep. be
5: very nice. I mean, the study highlights actually how little morbidity there is with even standard of care. Grade 1 GI toxicity rate, 9% with standard of care. I'm curious to know in the audience who's using the spacer. Is it the minority? Okay. All right. How, how about the fiducial
1: markers? Are they uh, absolutely essential for every? form of external uh, beam radiation? Yeah, not absolutely
5: essential. We do it in our practice because it's, uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, the imaging, there's really not a lot of interobserver variability in how to interpret where they are. But there is a fallback plan of just getting a CT scan, a cone beam CT, while a patient's on the table. And you don't really need fiducial markers to see the, the prostate on that. Okay. So, uh, one of the controversies uh, in intermediate risk prostate cancer is whether men can get away with brachy as monotherapy or whether you need to do a short course of external beam beforehand. This is a, a large retrospective analysis comparing the outcomes of either, and it shows that there's no, toxi- uh, there's no uh, change in disease control for external beam plus brachy boost compared to brachy monotherapy. Um, there is a hint that in the higher-risk, intermediate-risk patients that there may be a benefit, so you consider it in those men with multiple risk factors. Um, the downside is that there tends to be more toxicity, um, GU toxicity, with the brachytherapy boost. So uh, this is an interesting study um, that compared outcomes for people who had surgery or radiation, and one of the unique twists here is that it took only very high-risk men with Gleason 9 to 10, and it it included men who had brachytherapy boost. Uh, So this study showed something different compared to the others. Uh, It showed that the brachytherapy boost patients actually did very well relative to external beam and radical prostatectomy with a very low risk of distant metastasis and cause-specific mortality, so 55% 10-year distant metastasis rate for the other therapies, and uh, 87, distant metastasis-free survival. So uh, it's unclear, you know, whether this is really real, uh, because, it, uh, you know... It's But it's really huge. Um, so it makes it less likely to be a fake-out. You know, you've got 1,800 patients. So, you know, no one really has any solid theories on why this is the case. Uh, obviously, local control with a brachy boost is better than with external beam. But, you know, one of the uh, plausible hypotheses is that maybe it's, it's working with hormonal therapy um, and helping against micrometastatic disease.
4: What, what's your total radiation dose on the brachy boost? If it's 70 to 79 in external beam, what's yeah, your total? Yeah, you, you end
5: up uh, scaling back on the external beam. So then instead of doing that dose, you give uh, 45 to 50 external beam, and then you reduce the implant to 110. We use uh, an LDR approach with iodine, so we give 110. So it's 155 it is a higher RAD dose versus yep. it's almost double more than double yep yep so and you see that in the local control rates okay so um, these next slides are post operative radiation slides so uh, we have a couple randomized studies that compare adjuvant radiation to observation showing a benefit for adjuvant radiation to improve PSA control and maybe survival. But we don't have studies that compare adjuvant to early salvage, which is a lot more relevant for our our management today. This is a multi-institutional database uh, where they looked at this retrospectively, and they showed that there may be better outcomes when you give adjuvant compared to early salvage with improvements in PSA control, distant met, and overall survival. So we are waiting on randomized study. Um, Two big trials will come out maybe in the next 5, 10 years.
1: But you know the one message that does come out of this is, um, if you're inclined to use early salvage rather than adjuvant, then the earlier the early salvage you give, the better it is. Right? Yeah,
5: that is a common theme. For every PSA rise of 0.1, your salvage radiation cure rate goes down by 2%. Yeah,
1: so you don't let their PSA get much above 0.1. You know, especially yeah. if you know if you have a persistent rise. You don't wait for the PSA to get too high before you implement the salvage radiation therapy. Yeah, I was
4: right. going to ask Doug and Stacy, what's your cutoff for instituting salvage?
3: <clears throat> well, yeah, for us, once it becomes detectable, I refer them. So, well, what's that?
4: I mean, like by point oh eight, we're sort of thinking like you better go talk to the radiation oncologist. But what do you do, Doug?
2: Um, I don't know. I still see a lot of falses, false positives at that. You know, somewhere between point one and point two, we start saying this is real, but. You know, there's a lot of toxicity, you know, we all know there's lots of patients that, you know, these these studies don't capture it. There's a lot of patients that that will never have any problems from it if they didn't get radiation, so it has to be individual.
5: There are ways to help improve outcomes with salvage radiation. One of them is to give concurrent hormonal therapy. Uh, This is a retrospective analysis of people who had hormonal therapy or not. With long-term follow-up, they showed the freedom from distant metastasis rate at 10 years was 88%. You have a higher risk of MET for higher grade features, higher stage, and lower radiation dose. Uh, One of the um, things that they found in this study is that there seems to be a threshold where the benefit is really restricted to people with a very high risk of distant med. So uh, in this uh, figure, basically, if you have a 30% or higher risk of distant metastasis based on nomogram using uh, clinical-based features, then you seem to benefit more from the hormonal therapy.
1: So the um, how, how about the duration of hormonal therapy? I mean, if you're giving uh, hormonal therapy with definitive radiation, you know, the debate is do you continue it for six months after, a year after, two years after. How about salvage? Uh, How long?
5: Yeah, no definitive answers on that. There are randomized studies um, of hormone therapy versus none, um, showing benefits for hormone therapy, but none that compare different timing regimens. So basically you use your judgments. For the highest risk, uh, youngest men, we do tend to give long-term, which is defined as 18 months or more. But the majority of men probably receive short-term in our practice.
1: And and those youngest men are the ones who hate the androgen deprivation therapy for 18 months or more the most. I mean, that's like the worst thing for them is is being on ADT. Well, you know,
5: by the time they get to us and they have high-risk pathology, they are pretty freaked out. So, you know, you can talk them into it uh, and uh, use your judgment after six months pass to, to stop short. So another thing you can do to improve salvage radiation outcomes is treat larger volumes and include lymph nodes that may be at risk. This is a retrospective look at people who had lymph nodes included versus not, and it does show an improvement in freedom from biochemical failure with no change in distant met. So the, the figure shows people who had nodal treatment and hormonal therapy with 66% um, controlled versus uh, bed alone with no hormone therapy at only 48%. So this is a question that's been looked at in an RTOG study that has accrued and uh, will report maybe in five years.
1: So how much extra bowel toxicity do you get if you treat the, the nodes?
5: Yeah, you, you do uh, accept more dose to the upper rectum and small bowel and more dose to the bladder. So... Um, Now, the studies don't show any convincing detriment. We actually looked at our quality of life outcomes and did not show any decrease in quality of life with the larger fields, but you have to accept that there is that risk of more morbidity. So um, shorter courses of radiation uh, are much less established in the postoperative setting. Uh, This is one of the few papers on that subject where they compared outcomes uh, at Duke. Um, The VA patients ended up getting hypofractionated treatment in 26 days, and then the non-VA patients had standard fractionation uh, as a resource issue, I'm told. So uh, what this showed was um, no changes on the bottom line at the MVA um, with uh, any change with biochemical control or toxicity, and this is something that uh, is being tested in a randomized study right now, the NRG GU003.
1: Yeah, so th- this is, uh, you know, kind of another I- issue when the patients have to get, their PSA starts to rise and they have to get salvage radiation therapy you know they uh, they wonder, can they get a shorter, shorter course rather than this six or seven weeks?
5: Yeah, you know um, you might not think it's as safe because the volume is is way bigger. You know you're treating about an eighty to hundred cc volume um, that's a prostate bed and you're treating a lot more bowel and bladder. This is
4: a study out of uh, Milan and the Mayo uh, Clinic and Sloan-Kettering where they looked at salvage with external beam radiation and androgen therapy after prostatectomy compared, compared to androgen deprivation versus observation. And they saw external beam and at androgen deprivation, as you can see in the upper curve, had better uh, survival, overall survival. So um, I, I think that makes sense.
1: I'm going to skip over this one to give Russell more, give Russell enough time uh, to do our advanced disease because these are very important new papers.
4: Uh, This looks at continuous versus intermittent androgen deprivation in prostate cancer. And the bottom line line is intermittent has reduced risk of heart failure and fractures. So I I think you should do it if you can.
0: So uh, one of the biggest uh, detriments to drug development in the post operative or post radiation therapy setting is that we lack intermediate uh, endpoints. The IceCap group looked at thousands of uh, tr- uh, patients from almost 30 trials. And the bottom line is that metastasis-free survival has a very strong surrogate uh, with uh, a correlation coefficient of 0.92. So uh, this is likely going to accelerate drug development in the localized setting. So uh, the TOAD trial was a randomized study of immediate versus delayed androgen deprivation in the biochemical recurrent population for the for the most part it did show that early uh, early initiation of androgen deprivation and biochemical recurrence Uh, improved uh, survival, but this paper looked at quality of life, which is the balance that we face in this setting, Um, and of the multiple domains that they looked at, really sexual function and hormonal symptoms, hot flashes were uh, um, affected adversely, but otherwise um, not so much.
3: So this, this is a study looking at whether um, androgen deprivation therapy is really increased with, uh, associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's, and it wasn't. <laughs>
0: um, so the the next uh, two studies are, are game-changing studies. So this was uh, an arm of the Stampede trial uh, looking at the uh, abiraterone acetate, the sip 17 androgen synthesis inhibitor with 5 milligrams of prednisone versus ADT alone for castration-sensitive prostate cancer. Of note, 50% of these patients were newly metastatic, and uh, about 20% to 25% were non-metastatic or node positive. Um, It did improve overall survival um, quite significantly and failure-free survival. This next study, um, similarly, although this, uh, this paper was really in only high-risk patients, high-risk defined as two out of the three, either bone, multiple bone metastases, high-grade, or visceral metastases, also abiraterone acetate. Um, that hazard ratio is wrong. It's about 0.6. So, uh, again, abiraterone, both in the high-risk and even perhaps in the non-high-risk patients, is a standard of care for, uh, for castration-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, next uh, slide. So now we have docetaxel, which is chemotherapy. It's given for six cycles every three weeks. Also uh, has shown to improve... Uh, overall survival in this population versus abiraterone. So this is a meta-analysis looking at the hazard ratios uh, for survival. So the top bit is the three studies looking at chemotherapy, um, the charted study, the stampede study, and um, the Getug study, uh, or Getug, it's a French study. The, the, the bottom are the two studies I just spoke of. Um, the, a Bayesian analysis suggested that perhaps abiraterone is better, but really the curves... Uh, in another analysis, look to be overlapping. So you really have to discuss the uh, side effects, uh, and I discuss both options with patients.
1: So I mean, I would think that that would be a no-brainer for the patients, wouldn't it? Be easier to do abiraterone
0: than chemo? Well, it's not. Um, uh, There's multiple factors. Chemotherapy, you're done in five months, right? So it's it's five months of worse toxicity, but then you're just on ADT versus two years, three years, or more of uh, high blood pressure, You know the prednisone toxicity, and honestly, the cost of abiraterone. So there are actually pros and cons to to both. Um, And... and, uh, I've, I've had patients go both, both ways.
4: So what, what do you recommend or what are your patients choosing? What do you see clinically?
0: Um, so, so most of my patients opt for the abiraterone or prednisone, and then when they get their copay, they switch. Um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, it really depends. If it's free to them, they opt for the abiraterone. If it's not free to them, they, change, they don't. So uh, the next two studies are in the non-metastatic castration-resistant setting. So um, as you guys are likely aware, you you treat many of these patients. The castration-resistant prostate cancer patients who do not have documented metastatic disease, have there is no standard of care. Uh, this study included patients who had a small lymph node in the pelvis or no documented metastatic disease. That's with conventional imaging, CT scan and bone scan, randomized 2 to 1 to... Um, apalutamide versus placebo. Apalutamide is uh, similar to enzalutamide. It's an androgen receptor antagonist. It met its primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival with significant improvement, a hazard ratio of 0.3. And overall survival is essentially too early. um, And... It also reduces the time to symptomatic progression that really you do have hormonal side effects. You also have a rash and hypothyroidism that you have to look at. So apalutamide is now FDA-approved, and it's the only FDA-approved medication in this population.
4: I, I think the urologists in the audience should star this paper because for the patient for the urologist who gives lupron himself and doesn 't refer the patient to the oncologist, this gives forty more months of survival with relatively few side effects and it 's just a pill and there 's a lot of urologists who, for whatever reason don 't want to send their patients on to the oncologist and I think this is going to be a big uh, so, so, so yes' you know, gone
0: It's it's a game changing. It's 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 interesting because in my population, I don't have a lot of these patients, Um, so I don't. You know, most of our patients don't get primary androgen deprivation to their prostate. So a lot of patients that have castration resistant non metastatic disease are either patients that got radiation, uh, and then develop a a, a localized castration resistant disease, or patients who got primary androgen deprivation. Um, And so um, we don't see a lot of that on our side of medical oncology. But this is huge. uh, I think. And if you're if you have a specialty pharmacy and you're a big group practice, it's also a big moneymaker for what it's worth. So enzalutamide, so this is a, a, another study. This was like an um, insert and replace enzalutamide versus apalutamide in the protocol, a very similarly designed study. Uh, of note, I, I should say, for both this study and the PROSPER study, these are patients with short doubling times. So this is not the patient with a very slow-rising PSA. The, the, those patients... Um, We don't have any data on it, and they might not need anything. But these are patients whose doubling time median is four months for both studies. Um, Very similar hazard ratio for metastasis prevention. So enzalutamide is also uh, reasonable. The label has not changed yet for enzalutamide.
1: We have three minutes.
0: Okay. We'll make it. Um, So in patients who have received prior abiraterone and responded, they can respond again to enzalutamide. but the response isn't long. Next. Um, so in, as terms of biomarkers, we are trying to understand who is likely to benefit from an AR-targeted therapy. So ARV7 is now available and can uh, be tested. Circulating tumor cells, uh, circulating tumor DNA for copy number and mutation is likely coming.
2: I'm going to skip this.
0: Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to skip this too.
2: This. All right, this is the last one, I think. So, yeah, this is looking more, at. More. What's that? A Sorry, more. go ahead. Anyway, uh, androgen deprivation, importantly, uh, this was for men who had six months of ADT. Uh, a quarter of them, even two years later, still had very low testosterone levels, so the ADT persists. And if you look at cardiovascular mortality, the patients that had the longer suppression of testosterone had the more uh, cardiovascular mortality, particularly if they had underlying comorbidities.
0: So this is a study that we just published. Um, Abiraterone, as you know, is ten to twelve thousand dollars a month. Uh, we tested a randomized trial of low dose, two hundred fifty milligrams, with a low fat breakfast, versus the standard thousand milligrams fasting, and we showed uh, the exact same uh, response, the exact same. Uh, time to PSA uh, progression uh, in both arms. So um, this is something that to discuss with patients, especially if they have a, a high copay. PSA isn't the perfect marker, but hormone levels were also uh, different. Um, so the last one we'll talk about is is what we alluded to earlier. So this is uh, the this is the PSMA conjugated. Uh, uh, Antibody, so it targets PSMA. Uh, It's and in an open-label phase two study, it's given um, every six weeks. The PSA response rate was around 60%, and this is in a refractory patient population. So uh, large uh, studies are being done uh, and opening across uh, the United States. This is likely going to be, in my opinion, the next uh, new FDA-approved therapy. Early data looks pretty. exciting.
1: Okay, thank you all very much.